Genesis 1, 1 through 10, 31. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separate the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. We're beginning a new series today, and in the next eight weeks leading up to and including Easter, we're going to be looking at uh, some of the biggest questions, some of the biggest obstacles that people have to faith in God, and especially faith in Christianity. And this morning, we're beginning with the question of God and science. Uh, Some people might ask, well, why wouldn't we begin with the question of God's existence? Isn't that a more foundational question? Uh, In many ways, yes. But the reason we're beginning with science is because for many people in our culture, the question of science makes the question of God irrelevant. Uh, In other words, if science provides us full, total, and complete answers for everything in the universe, then the question of God's existence really is a non-starter. And so uh, because of cultural reasons, really, we we should begin here. Um, And, you know, if you're here this morning, um, I want to, uh, you know, let you know that if you're exploring the claims of Christianity, uh, my goal this morning is not to convince you um, that the Bible has uh, an explanation uh, for every single scientific question that's out there. Um, Actually, my goal is much simpler. I just want to open the door for us this morning. I want to help us see that it is possible to affirm everything science shows us about the world and also to affirm everything the Bible shows us about the world and that you can do both of those things and still remain an intelligent, informed, rational, and intellectually consistent person. By the way, if you're a Christian here this morning, I want the same thing for you as well. Um, And the reason this is so important is because there's a narrative in our culture that God and science are at war. Uh, that faith and science are at war, and you really can't reconcile those two things. You can only pick a side in this war. And Genesis 1 
uh, is a real battleground in this war. Um, what I want to help us see this morning is that that is both unfortunate and unnecessary, uh, this war narrative, and that actually Genesis 1 helps us to make sense of some of the biggest objections and challenges that arise when we begin talking about the relationship or really the alleged incompatibility of God and science. So today, you know, what we're doing is um, we're skipping a stone right across the surface of the water. Uh, We don't have time to go deep into any of these things. We're just opening the door for a conversation. But I do want to address three of the biggest issues that come up when we consider this question of God and science. And first, obviously, there's the question of evolution. Secondly, there's the issue of um, what is the relationship or the difference between uh, reason and science on one hand and faith on the other. And the last issue is the issue of miracles. Uh, Genesis 1 addresses all of those things. And I want to look at them this morning by seeing three things that Genesis 1 shows us about the nature of the universe, the nature of the world that we live in. Genesis shows us that, that this universe is ordered, it's enchanted, and it's good. And those, those three things address those objections that I just uh, talked about. So the universe, the Bible shows us, is ordered, it's enchanted, and it's good. And I'll talk about what each three of those things mean As we go along. So, the first thing the Bible shows us is that the world is an ordered place. What do I mean by that? You know, the question comes up all the time what does the Bible have to say about evolution? Are these really six literal 24 hour days? Because if so, then we have a serious problem. What do we say about that? One of the first things we have to do is understand that. Um, all scholars, all biblical experts, really any, anybody who studies literature or any kind of texts understands that in order to properly interpret a text, you have to understand what was the original author trying to say to the original audience. Now, I hope I'm not being too wildly controversial to suggest that the author of Genesis, who was writing thousands of years before Charles Darwin, probably did not have the theory of evolution in mind when they wrote the book of Genesis. That wasn't the point. Which means that if we try to force Genesis 1 to answer all of our modern scientific questions, then we're trying to force the text to answer questions that it wasn't even addressing in the first place. So when you read the Bible, or when you read anything for that matter, one of the first things you have to do is understand the genre of what you're reading, right? So let me give you an example. If you open a book and the first words are once upon a time, then you know this is a fairy tale and you interpret it accordingly. If you open another book and the first words are Thucydides wrote the history of the war between the Peloponnesians and the Ephesians, you know you're dealing with something different there. That's history. You interpret it accordingly. If you open another book and it says it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. That's something different from that. You interpret according to the genre, okay? Now, I hold to what is called a high view of Scripture. A high view of Scripture means that I believe that it is God's Word and that it is true and authoritative in everything that it says. Um, But the Bible contains many different genres. So, for instance, um, when I open the Gospel of Luke and I read in chapter 2 and it says... In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. I understand that that's talking about history, and I interpret it accordingly. When you're discerning the truth of the Bible, you have to understand what genre 
you're reading. So when I open Psalm 91 and I read there and it says, God will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. Understanding the truth of that passage means understanding that this is poetry. And therefore the truth that's being expressed here is not that God is a big bird with feathers, but it's telling us something about God's care and protection. You have to understand the genre of what you're reading. So when you look at Genesis 1, you see many elements of what we would call poetry. Uh, for instance, there's a lot of repetition in Genesis 1. Uh, it says, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning, and there was evening and morning. There's a lot of repetition in Genesis 1, kind of like the chorus of a song. Um, and in fact, song is a really good way to describe what's happening in Genesis chapter 1. And you see this in other places in the Bible, by the way. Uh, so in Judges chapter 4 and 5, uh, Judges chapter 4 is, is a historical description of a battle that occurred. Uh, Judges chapter 5 is a song about that battle. So when it talks about the, the stars from heaven were doing battle, we don't interpret that literally. Judges 5 is a song that describes the historical battle that happened in Judges chapter 4, okay? Or in Exodus chapters 14 and 15. Exodus 14 describes the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Exodus 15 is a song that celebrates the crossing of the Red Sea. You understand that it's a song, and that means you interpret it differently, okay? Um, they're poetic descriptions of something that happened in history. Genesis 1 is a poem or a song about historical events that future chapters in Genesis uh, describe in more detail. And therefore, you don't interpret Genesis 1 as a precise, detailed, historical, analytical description of historical events the way that you would do that with Luke chapter 2. Now, some Christians do interpret it that way. Um, all Christians should treat one another with respect and charity about this because admittedly Genesis 1 is a difficult, hard to understand passage with many different possible interpretations. But I want to encourage you and help you this morning by letting you know that many of the greatest theologians and biblical scholars throughout history, uh, people with a very high view of scripture, uh, so for instance people like St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas, and by the way these were people who lived hundreds of years before Charles Darwin. They did not interpret Genesis 1 as describing six literal 24-hour days. They saw it as describing something different from that. In fact, one of the things that uh, I really want you to know this morning is that it is entirely possible to be an orthodox, Bible-believing Christian with a very high view of Scripture, and you can also uh, believe that God created life and guides some form of natural selection. There's nothing in Scripture that would prohibit you from believing that. In fact, one of the things that's most amazing about the Bible um, is that it shows the universe to be an incredibly detailed, intricate, uh, complex, and organized place. And that's what I mean when I say that the Bible shows us an ordered universe. It's an ordered place. When Genesis was written, there were many other um, creation stories in the ancient Near East. Uh, every single one of those other creation stories tells uh, the story of creation, and it always describes creation as coming about as the result of some kind of war or some kind of conflict. So, for instance, you know, it might say that human beings were made out of the body of a slain god, or that the heavens and the earth were made out of a slaughtered sea monster, things like that. 
All of the other creation stories picture creation as coming out of some kind of war, some kind of conflict. Genesis 1 is utterly unique among all of the other creation accounts in the ancient Near East because instead of the universe being the result of violence and chaos, it shows us a world that's the result of a God who created it out of nothing and also made it into a beautiful, harmonious, finely tuned, and highly ordered place. God, in other words, is portrayed in Genesis 1 as a master craftsman, uh, a master designer, or even to use more contemporary language, Genesis shows us a God who's a master coder, okay? Um, in fact, it's, it's this view of the universe, the Bible's view of the universe, that actually makes modern scientific method possible. It, that, that means that we can be very sanguine, we can be optimistic and hopeful about the possibility of studying the universe because of the view of the universe that the Bible actually gives us. So let me explain what I mean. There are a lot of different worldviews out there. Worldview is just a, a way of seeing reality. So polytheism is a worldview that says there are many gods, even hundreds of gods. Genesis was written in the midst of a polytheistic culture. Uh, in a polytheistic worldview that believes in many gods, every event is explained by the activity of some god. So you wouldn't bother studying the cause of an earthquake or a flood because your polytheistic worldview would tell you that happened. Well, you know, one of the gods was angry. That's why that earthquake or that flood happened. Or take animism, for instance. Animism is a worldview that says that there are gods residing in living things like trees and rocks. Therefore, you wouldn't cut open a tree to study it because you might be cutting open into the home of a god. You should be worshiping the tree, not dissecting it, according to animism. Or take Eastern worldviews, like Buddhism, for instance. Uh, they would say that this material, physical universe is an illusion. And why would you study something that doesn't even exist? Okay? Christianity is utterly unique among all the worldviews that are out there because Christianity gives us a view of the world that actually makes the modern scientific enterprise both possible and reasonable. There was a Christian thinker named um, Kenneth Richard Samples he wrote a book several years ago in which he lists 10 features of the Christian view of the universe that actually make modern science feasible. Let me just list the first five and you'll get the idea. Um, first, the physical universe is a distinct objective reality. That is something that the Christian worldview gives us. Number two, the laws of nature exhibit order, patterns, and regularity. Number three, the laws of nature are uniform throughout the physical universe. That means they don't change. Number four, the physical universe is intelligible. We can understand it. Number five, the world is good, valuable, and worthy of careful study. In other words, we don't worship the universe. It, the universe is actually a place that is capable of being studied according to the Christian worldview, according to the account that the Bible shows us. Friends, the Bible um, gives us an ordered view of the world. Not only is it compatible with science, not only does it not contradict science, it actually makes science both possible and reasonable. It's an ordered view of the world. But secondly, the Bible gives us an account of the universe in, that shows us that it's an enchanted place. Now, what do I mean by that? And why is it so important? Um, over the last hundred years or so, uh, sociologists and philosophers use a word to describe the world we live in. They call it disenchanted. Disenchanted does not mean discouraged or disillusioned in this usage. Disenchanted means that God plays no meaningful role in our public life together. 
Uh, in other words, the world used to be an enchanted place, but we no longer see the world that way. Now we see the world as a place that is no longer subject to spiritual or supernatural reality. And the most extreme version of that position would be something called naturalism. Naturalism says that there's no such person as God or anything like God. Naturalism says that everything in the universe has a natural cause and is the result of random forces that are not guided by anyone or anything. Now, obviously, there is a conflict between naturalism and the Bible. There is a conflict between naturalism and God. Okay. Now, I just spent the whole first point showing you that it's possible to believe both in evolution, but you don't have to be a naturalist to do that. You can believe in God and still believe in evolution. In other words, evolution is a theory that describes the process by which everything came into existence. Evolution describes the process by which everything came into existence. Genesis 1 says that process was guided by God. Naturalism says that the process was unguided. But here's the thing. Science is designed to observe and to describe the process. However, science cannot describe and cannot show us whether or not that process was guided or unguided, which means that naturalism requires just as much faith as believing in God. Now, when you say that, a lot of times people bristle at those kinds of things, um, because they, um, they don't believe that their worldview includes something like faith. But let's define what I mean when I say faith. Uh, popularly speaking, there are a few different ways that we use the word faith or that you can define faith. Um, at the most obvious level, the religious view of faith would say um, that faith is an irrational belief in the supernatural. Okay, faith is an irrational belief in the supernatural. Another way we use the word faith is to describe a generally optimistic attitude about circumstances or people. So that usage of faith, we might say things like, you know, you just got to have faith that things are going to work out. Or we might say, you know, after that last election, I've lost all faith in my fellow Americans. Faith in that usage means a generally optimistic attitude about circumstances or people. But neither of those two ways is the way that I'm using the word faith. When I use the word faith to say that all people use faith in their worldviews, faith is any unprovable assumption about the way things really are. Faith is any unprovable assumption about the way things really are. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have evidence for the things you believe. It doesn't mean that you don't use your rational cognitive faculties to try and sift the evidence. It just means that that the evidence and the reason that we have are not capable, not sufficient of actually proving the things that we're investigating. But we should all use um, whatever evidence is available to us in, in our rational cognitive faculties to examine that evidence. You really should examine it. So, for instance, I didn't become a Christian until I was 30 years old. Um, I didn't grow up in a religious home. I grew up with parents who were, would have been agnostic, atheist types of, of people. And that means that for the better part of my life, I grew up uh, more or less accepting the atheistic views of my parents and a lot of the other people that were around me. So for me, it's always made sense why people are atheists. I mean, I get it. I, I think that there's some very compelling arguments for that position, and we should honor and respect uh, just how compelling those arguments are. Uh, in fact, what's never made sense to me is the way that both atheists and religious people oftentimes ridicule the arguments and the positions of each other 
and say things like, I can't believe how any you know, rational, intelligent person could believe something as idiotic as that. Uh, listen, both positions are strong positions. Both positions make compelling arguments. I, I think we have to acknowledge that there's some really good reasons out there why someone would be an atheist, why someone wouldn't believe in God. We should be honest about that. We should treat one another with respect and charity over those things. I've always thought the uh, arguments for atheism are very compelling. I am a Christian, however, because ultimately I think the arguments for Christianity are more compelling, especially the argument for the historicity of the resurrection. And if you want to know more about that, come back on Easter because we'll be talking about it. But here's the point. At the end of the day, neither position can prove their case conclusively. Faith is any unprovable assumption about the way things really are. And when we define it like that, we realize that all of us have faith about all kinds of things. Now, as I said, naturalists and atheists are oftentimes offended by a statement like that. Um, offended by the suggestion that their worldview requires faith. They'll say things like, atheism isn't a set of beliefs. We don't have beliefs about anything. Uh, what we have is knowledge about facts that can be observed. So, for instance, Stephen Colbert interviewed Ricky Gervais on his show last year. Uh, Ricky Gervais is a British actor and comedian. He's also a very outspoken atheist. And during the course of the interview, they started talking about the existence of God. And uh, here's how Ricky Gervais described his atheism. He said, atheism isn't a belief system. Here's atheism in a nutshell. You say there's a God. I say, can you prove it? You say no. I say, I don't believe you then. In other words, atheism presents itself very frequently as an absence of belief. It says, we don't have beliefs. We only have knowledge about facts that can be observed and verified by the scientific method. Now, as many people have pointed out, that statement itself, you can only know what is verified by science, that statement itself is not verifiable by the scientific method. And we can laugh and, and we can say, ha-ha, cute little intellectual parlor tricks. They teach freshmen in college these things. It's kind of like, you know, the statement people will sometimes say, there's no such thing as absolute truth, and then other people will say, oh, really, is that absolutely true? We kind of laugh and, at these things and dismiss them because they teach them to college freshmen. But we cannot dismiss these things. If you really want to have intellectual integrity, you have to recognize that many of these statements that we make are self-refuting statements. And, and if we want to have intellectual integrity, we have to pay attention to these things. Whether you like it or not, naturalism and atheism are philosophical faith commitments that you cannot prove. Faith is any unprovable assumption about the way things really are doesn't mean we don't use evidence. It doesn't mean we don't use reason. It just means that we can't prove it. To say that atheism is just the absence of belief is disingenuous. And I'm not trying to be purposefully confrontational about that, but, but it, it is. Logically speaking, you cannot, believe, uh, you cannot disbelieve one thing without simultaneously believing something else. There's no such thing as just not believing. Knowledge and, and, and intellectual endeavor does not occur in a vacuum. You cannot disbelieve one thing without simultaneously believing something else. And if the topic in question is ultimate spiritual reality, that is not something that can be proven either way. Whatever you believe about it, you're going to have to take that belief by faith. And when we put it like that, we realize that our lives are filled with all kinds of faith commitments and 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 that we have to believe what we believe about those things on faith. 
And that's because science can give us facts, but science can never tell us what to do with the facts. Science is a wonderful thing. Science is a wonderful tool. Science can give us facts, but science can never tell us what to do with those facts. There are all kinds of questions. How do we interpret this data? How do we apply this data? You can't answer interpretation and application questions without some kind of faith. And we're going to talk about many of those things, many of those questions in the weeks to come, issues of morality and justice and human rights, things like that. But let me give you one example of what I mean. Science tells us that sometimes there can be links between our genetic makeup and things like disease or addiction or other forms of antisocial behavior, things like that. So there's the, the scientific fact, this genetic link, but what do we do with that fact? Did you know that less than 100 years ago, uh, the scientific response to that fact was something called the eugenics movement? This was very, very popular um, 100 years ago. Eugenics was an effort to perfect the human race by preventing the spread of what were viewed as defective genes. Uh, it advocated sterilizing, interning, uh, sometimes even killing uh, people who had, quote, bad genes. Friends, that was considered the height of progressive science about 100 years ago. You know what put an end to the eugenics movement? It wasn't science. It was Adolf Hitler. When people saw Nazis slaughtering millions of Jews in an effort to produce a master race, they realized that eugenics, while maybe scientifically efficient, was also evil. But science could not tell people that. It could give you the facts, but it can't tell you what to do with the facts. For that, you need faith, an unprovable assumption about the way things really are. So first, the Bible shows us a world that is ordered. It is perfectly compatible with science. It actually makes the scientific method possible. Secondly, the Bible shows us a universe that is enchanted. Not only is there a God who guides the process by which all things came into existence, God provides the rational basis for our deepest convictions and actions and passions in this world. But lastly, I want us to see that the Bible gives us a view of the world that is good. It's good. What do I mean by that? Verse 2 says that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. In other words, there was a period of time in the very beginning of creation when everything was chaos and darkness. That's all there was. There was no form. There was no order. There was no light. And God's creative act brings order out of the chaos and light out of the darkness. And what happens when God does that? When you read through Genesis 1, as we noticed earlier, uh, remember we said there are things that get repeated over and over again in Genesis 1, like the chorus of a song. One of the things that gets repeated over and over in Genesis 1 is when it says, and God saw that it was good. Every time God creates something, every time you get to the end of one of the days of creation, you have this summary statement in which it says, God saw that it was good. In fact, at the very end of the chapter, we printed it in the bulletin so that we could see this. The very last verse of Genesis says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Not just good, it was very good. Now, why is this so important? Here's why. What does science do for us? What do we actually use science for? One big thing is we use science to learn more about this world in which we live. But that's not all. We don't only use science because we're intellectually curious. No. 
we use science to try to make the world a better place, right? There are many people, increasingly more people in our world today that are looking to science and technology to solve uh, the problems of our world, things like aging and disease and poverty and social inequity. Um, there's even hope among some people that science might one day provide uh, a solution to our ultimate problem of death. But here's the question. Why do we consider those things a problem? If there is no God, if this world is all there is, if naturalism really is true, then all of those things we just mentioned, aging, disease, poverty, social inequity, even things like war and violence, all of that stuff is perfectly natural. Why would we consider those things a problem in need of solving? It's just nature doing what nature does best, using the unguided process of natural selection to ensure the survival of the fittest. And if that's the case, then chaos and darkness really are just as natural a part of the world as all the wonderful things. Because science shows us a wonderful world, a world full of harmony and order and beauty and intricacy. We've got the human brain. There's a strand of DNA and rainbows. The world is full of amazing, wonderful, beautiful things. But we also live in a world that is falling apart. It's the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, breakdown, decay, corruption. Everything is falling apart, but it's okay. It's perfectly natural. Why do we feel like that's unnatural? We experience an overwhelming desire to reverse that, to overcome it. We feel innately that things are not the way they're supposed to be. We want to bring order out of chaos. We want to bring light out of darkness, which means that there's a question, and it's a fair question. If God already did all of that at the beginning of creation... If God is supposedly already brought order and light out of chaos and darkness, why is there still so much chaos and darkness in the world? If God made everything good, why is there so much in the world that is not good? It seems like an argument against the Bible, but that's where miracles help us. What are the first miracles in the Bible? There may be a few things in Genesis that might qualify, but the first unmistakable series of large-scale, miraculous events that happen in the Bible are in the book of Exodus, right after Genesis. Uh, Exodus is the story of how Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was enslaving the Israelites. Do you remember that? Pharaoh was oppressing the nation of Israel, and so God brought a series of plagues on Egypt. It was a series of natural disasters that were miraculous because God did them. And all of the scholars and the commentators notice the same thing about this. God is unleashing the forces of chaos and darkness on Egypt. In other words, it's showing us that God is reversing creation. It's the unraveling of creation. In fact, the last plague that God brings on Egypt is darkness. It says there was darkness over the face of the land. It's the reversal of creation. The very first miracles in the Bible are a picture of the unraveling effects of human sin, human evil, human oppression, human rebellion against God. Sin, friends, is the unraveling of creation. That's why we know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. That's why we know that things like war and disease and poverty and death are profoundly unnatural things because sin is the unraveling of creation. Therefore, Everything we yearn for is the reweaving of creation, right? And that is exactly what we use science and technology for. We're trying to reweave creation. We want to bring order out of chaos. We want to bring light 
out of darkness. If you're a scientifically minded person here this morning and you struggle with the idea of miracles, then I want you to understand something. If there is a God, and we'll talk about that more next week, then from a logical, rational standpoint, there is no problem with miracles. God is perfectly free to intervene in the processes which he has created. But even more than that, I want us to understand that the biblical miracles are never just raw displays of power for the sake of making an impression. We talked about this last week, actually. The biblical miracles are never there just to provide a flashy display of power, like a fireworks display, you know, that gets us to say, ooh, ah, look at that. No, biblical miracles always either point to the unraveling effects of sin on creation or they point to the healing of creation. So for instance, look at the miracles of Jesus. What was Jesus doing? Jesus brings sight to the blind. What is that? That's light out of darkness. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish. What is that? That's abundance out of poverty. Jesus brings people back from the dead. What is that? That's bringing order out of chaos, out of decay, out of corruption. The Bible's miracles are the fulfillment of everything that we're trying to do with our science and technology. Don't tell me that you don't believe in miracles. One of the ways we use science is to try to become miracle workers. We are trying to reweave creation because we sense that this world is not the way it ought to be. Friends, God created this world to be a place of goodness. And he has promised to make good on that. Science shows us a world that is wonderful. It's complex, it's intricate, it's detailed, it's full of wonders and beauty, it's awe-inspiring. But science is also an attempt to push back on the forces of chaos and darkness and to reweave something that we feel intuitively has become unraveled. So whether you've just begun to explore the claims of Christianity or whether you've been a Christian for decades, we all need to see that everything we've been talking about this morning finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Because how does God make good on his promise to bring order out of chaos and light out of darkness? Here's how. Jesus Christ is the author of creation. The letter to the Colossians says that all things were made by him, through him, and for him. The Gospel of John says the same thing, that all things that came into existence came into existence through Jesus Christ. Even more than that, um, John says that Jesus Christ is the true life of the world and that he's the true light of the world. He is the word, he is the life, he is the light, and yet he came to earth, the greatest miracle that's ever happened in the history of the world. God became a man, and in so doing, he plunged himself into the chaos and the darkness of this world. But even more than that, when Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross, he was plunged into the cosmic chaos and darkness of our sin. Because on the cross, all the Gospels tell us that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, it says there was darkness. Darkness came over the land for three hours. Darkness was over the face of the land. It was a miracle. It was a supernatural event that was pointing to us the unraveling effects of our sin, but also the healing of our sin. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ, the true light of the world, was plunged into the ultimate cosmic darkness of God's justice on our sin and evil so that we could be brought into the light of God's love. Don't you see? On the cross, Jesus Christ, the weaver of creation, was unraveled so that we could be rewoven. 
The creator of all things was unmade so that we could be made into a new creation. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that we hope for in our science and our technology. So if you yearn for a healed world, if you yearn for a rewoven world, a remade world, then I want to encourage you that everything you yearn for is available to you in Jesus Christ. So if you're just beginning to explore Christianity, or if you've been a Christian for decades, um, I understand that we may have prompted more questions this morning than we provided answers, and that's okay. One of the reasons this church is here is because we want to be a place where people are free to ask questions like this, a place where we continue the conversation. Uh, So keep coming back. Uh, As Shakespeare once said, there are more things in heaven and earth, oh dear Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. So keep coming back and we'll keep exploring together, all right? Let's pray.